Well, good morning again. Good to see you all here, and thanks so much for finding it important to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. The Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, so we're here as a matter of obedience and hopefully out of our love to the Lord. I would like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the 15th chapter of what we know as Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Appreciate Bruce reading those verses a bit ago. I do want to read some additional verses, so they won't be on the screen. And if you'd like to take your Bible, I'd love for you to be able to follow along, uh, not only now, but in the course of the message. So I'd like to begin reading in verse number 10. We're going to read, I'm sorry, verse number 1. And we're going to read the first 10 verses and then skip around for a couple more until finally we'll come to the end where our text for this morning is. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 1. Paul says, so now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this hour of divine appointment. We understand, as we have already mentioned, that we're not here out of whim, we're here because you have ordained this time, this is the Lord's place, this is the Lord's day, and this is the Lord's people. And we pray that you would come and meet with us in this service, because that's the only thing that will really make it worthwhile to us, is if people come here today and sense the power of the living God working through your word, whether it's in the song format 
or the written format or as we preach. But we thank you for it. We thank you that the Word of God is living and powerful. And it is my simple prayer today that you will allow the Word of the Lord to be glorified and to have free course to run unimpeded, unhindered, to accomplish every purpose for which you have ordained it in this hour. Thank you, O God, that we have the promise and the assurance that you are always with us, but in that we are here today to do your bidding and to wait upon you for the blessing, we ask you to bless us in a special way and to meet our needs, to give to every listener a calm and quiet heart, to take from us those things which, though important to us perhaps before the service and after the service, are not things that we can really deal with now, save as you use your word to speak to our hearts. And so help us, Lord. We are weak in the flesh, and we would be distracted. We would wander. And I pray that you would prevent that, and I pray that you would allow the word of the Lord to work in our hearts. And I pray that you would be with the speaker this morning, for the infirmity of the flesh is not limited to the congregation, but includes us all. And I pray that you would grant to me a new sense of cleansing and the fullness of your spirit and the power of the Lord to do the bidding of God here today and that Jesus Christ would be uplifted and glorified, that believers would be drawn closer to you, and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, for I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Paul Uncertainties. Sorry that we couldn't do all of these messages maybe a little closer together where I have to spend a moment or two at the beginning of the message to try to catch you up on what this is all about. Essentially this, when you read through Paul's New Testament epistles, you will find about 16 different occasions when Paul makes the statement, I know, or ye know, or you know, or we know. And to be sure, some of these are rather casual statements, not so much designed to build heavy doctrine on, but others of them are mountain peak statements designed by God, given through the Apostle Paul on purpose, because there are certain things that God chose to use Paul that we might have absolute unshakable assurance about. Therefore, the title, Paul Uncertainties. Now, we've looked at several of these so far. I think today is the fourth of these, and Next month, Lord willing, I believe I will finish this for us. But just to show you quickly the ground that we've been over. For example, we started with the gospel. That's not by happenstance. You notice the very first verse that we read here this morning or in the first verses that we read. Paul says in verse number one, I delivered to you as of first importance. The gospel is absolutely of first importance because... If we are not assured that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, are not assured that he was buried, that his death was certain, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures, that he did that not just for all men, but for you personally, that you have acted on that in personal faith and trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then that's the first place to start. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, it 
we have a statement that Paul makes about the certainty of the gospel. Paul uncertainties in his own life. When he says, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I mentioned to you also, we not only have these 16 statements, but we have, if we add to it three others in which he uses the word persuaded. Paul says, I am persuaded. I'm absolutely assured of these things. And you have that doubled down on actually in that second Timothy chapter 1 verse 12 because he uses them both. He says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. So we started there. It's absolutely imperative. And I want to just remind everybody here this morning of something I know you've heard for a long time. But if you're new to this, maybe this is something really good to hear. And that is, you know, the Bible describes a no-so salvation. You do not have to wonder or question or hope as you go along, well, I hope I'm saved. You know, there are, there are people who teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says you can know. In fact, the Apostle Paul was also, or John was also used by God to affirm this truth to us when he said in 1 John chapter 5, These things write I unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know, K-N-O-W, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we have a no-so salvation. But you know there are other things that are important to us about which questions arise, not just about whether or not salvation is certain. And so from there we went to talk about security because, you know, what we observed is there are things that happen in life. We find ourselves unexpectedly separated from either people or things that we never expected to be separated from. And then you sort of draw that question out to spiritual things and you say to yourself, well, I mean, is it possible that I could ever be separated from Christ? I mean, I, I know I trusted him, but is something, could something come along by which that relationship could be damaged or severed? And the answer to that is no. Paul tells us in the end of Romans chapter 8, no, or nay, as it says in the King James Version, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. For I am persuaded, which he says again, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation, he begins that chapter with. He ends it with no separation. We not only have a no-so salvation, we know that we are absolutely secure in Christ. But in that same chapter, Paul deals with another question, and that is, you know, there are many untoward things that happen to people in life, and believers are not exempted from this. I'm sure you all know that very well this morning. Believers aren't exempted from cancer. Believers aren't exempted from automobile accidents. Believers aren't exempted from sudden and tragic death. These things happen even in the life of God's people. And someone has made it very popular by asking the question this way, why do bad things happen to good people? And Paul doesn't run from that. He, he spends a lot of time in chapter 8 addressing this. And the subject of God's providence comes up. I mean, do these things run amok? Are they out of control, or does God control them? And if he does control them, what on earth is he doing with them? And so we have another one of these Paul uncertainties, because in Romans 8, 28, he says, For we know 
You can be assured of this. You can take this to the bank. That God works all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. I might not envision everything that happens to me in life. I might not like everything that happens to me in life. But I do trust God. And I'm so glad to know that it's all in his power. It's all in his control. And when he allows these untoward things to happen in my life, he actually has a good purpose. And when they seem to be evil, he is so great in power that he's able to control them so that ultimately they yield our good and his glory. We serve a wonderful God if you haven't figured that out. But there's another question that comes, and that's the one that we're going to be dealing with this morning. And I think, yeah, we did that. (laughs) I think that probably we're on pretty safe ground when we would say to ourselves, the people in Corinth had this question. It has to do with Christian living or Christian service. I really debated about what to make the title of the sermon this morning. Do I call it Christian living? Do I call it Christian service? And I ultimately decided to make it Christian living because I know how the mind plays tricks. And I thought, if I call it Christian service, half the audience will just exempt themselves and say, well, I'm not called to full-time Christian service. But you know, you are called to full-time Christian living. And even for those who do not sense God's call leading them into full-time Christian service as the way you spend your life and earn, earn your living, we still are all called to Christian service, too. I'm just going to tell you that this morning. But here's what the question that comes, and that is, you get out there doing this for a little while, and you discover, you know what? This ain't easy. I know ain't ain't right and ain't supposed to say ain't. But every once in a while, something like that helps to make the point, and I'm just telling you, it is not easy. Serving the Lord, you get out there and you get to a certain place and you say to yourself, is this really worthwhile? Is this really worth it? I had a great treasure Two Saturdays, I think, ago, my wife and I were on our way up, I think, to North Carolina to do one of our Saturday hikes. And we were talking a little bit about this thing I'm talking to you about right now. Talking about some of the rough ground we've been over, some of the trials, some of the difficulties, some of the heartbreaks. And she looked at me And I could tell it was one of those moments. And she said this. She said, if knowing what you know now, you knew then, would you do this again? Hmm. Well, I didn't want to just give one of those flip answers off the cuff. So I took a couple sanctified moments not to answer. But when I found my words, what I really wanted to say, I looked at her and I said, I would. I would do it all again. 
And here's why, and I gave her two reasons. Number one, it was what God called me to do. And I knew that. Number two, in the doing of it, in spite of all the difficulties and problems that we encountered along the way, I had peace and joy and fulfillment in doing the will of God. But these questions, they do come. So we don't have time to do a full exposition of 1 Corinthians 15. You can give a sigh of relief now. But when you look at that verse 58, it does kind of become apparent that Paul understood that people were asking this question because he addresses it. In fact, it's at the very end of the chapter when he does address it. And he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I, I wish the ESV had brought this out. The ESV chooses not to translate a word that's actually there in the original. For those of you who know the original language, it's hati, which means because. And it's right there before knowing. And the King James renders that. It says, for as much as ye know. But you could just as easily and just as accurately translate it this way. You could say, because you know. Because you know. Here's this Paul uncertainty that we want to talk about this morning. Because you know and can have absolute and full assurance that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, even though that question at times haunts and arises and comes up. So my treatment of this this morning is going to be a rather practical one in which I ask you two questions, the first of which you see there, because I think it helps maybe for us as we seek to identify with people who were asking that question nearly 2,000 years ago, why did they ask it? We might figure out why we ask it, and then we're going to see how Paul answers it. So why did they ask? Well, hopefully the first reason they ask is not a problem we have in this room today. But it was a doctrinal reason. It's why I chose to read verse number 12. After Paul goes through all of this, recitation of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Then he says this in that verse number 12. He says, now if Christ be preached, in other words, I came to Corinth and preached the gospel to you, you believe. And if Christ is preached that he rose from the dead, where do some of you get off saying there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, Doctrine has always, always has profound implications on practice. Don't ever let anybody tell you doctrine is not important. We base everything we do on doctrine because its ramifications are profound. It affects the way we live. It affects what we do. And the moment you throw up this idea of doubt in the resurrection, well... I mean, if there is no resurrection, if there is no God to face in judgment after this life, if there is no promised reward as Christians have been led to believe, then Paul ultimately includes of all, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. This is a farce. You might as well pick up and go home right now if there is no resurrection of the dead. You're wasting your time here today. But you see, there's a reason that they had this problem arise in Corinth, and I suspect what you have here is some false teachers who had mixed in 
with them a little bit, but it's important maybe from the standpoint of background to understand this. See, the Greeks, philosophically, the Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection. In fact, the Greeks thought the resurrection was nonsense, absolute and utter rubbish. Why did they? Well, all you have to do is go back to Acts chapter 17. So probably the two most well-known cities in the Bible, the New Testament in Corinth that we know of are Athens and Corinth. That 17th chapter of Acts tells us that when Paul went into Athens and was preaching there, he finally got to the end of that famous sermon that you have quoted in Acts chapter 17, and he calls them to repentance and he says, because God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, whereof he has given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And the next verse says, And when he spoke of the resurrection, some mocked. And others said, hmm, We'll hear you again if this matters. He was the one they called the babbler. Why is this? Well, the Greeks were dualists. In other words, that translates into this idea that the material is what's evil, so the body is the seat of evil passions. And if we're finally, we finally die and have an immortal spirit, if you, if you believe that, and the spirit is set free, then why on earth would you want to talk about the resurrection? Because you're finally free from this mortal coil, which is the seat of all of this evil. The resurrection made no sense to the Greeks, and the Greeks denied the resurrection. And if you go with that idea, which is, I'm going to tell you now, doctrine always has profound practical implications. If you go with that idea of the Greek philosophers, and these people had heard this and had begun to waver and had begun to doubt what Paul had assured them of in the resurrection, then here's where you come out. You come out where the other Greek philosophers called the Epicureans were. In fact, Paul even quotes them just to show you this is exactly the way his thought pattern is going. Look at verse 32. In the chapter, he says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, and you'll find in your version when you look at this, that this is set off in quotation marks. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's about what it is, folks. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If there is no resurrection of the dead, as I said before, go home now because you're wasting your time. And you might as well can all you get and get all you can in this life and just go ahead and live for the flesh, because that's all there is. So this is kind of important. The second, though, is really what I want to talk about. And this is kind of a practical reason. And it's, oh, you could call this discouraging or discouragement. It's what I was talking about earlier, because I think we all, we all get there at one point or another. Hmm. Laboring in vain. Is this going to be in vain? Is this really worth it? And Paul speaks of this. This is a subject that really is on Paul's heart and mind because he makes a statement in verse 10. Let me refer you back to that. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So he brings it up himself. And he says, here's how you can know that. 
He says, on the contrary, he said, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And you know, when you think about this, based on what we know and the information that we have in the New Testament, what Paul said there was absolutely the truth. Paul had as much, if not more, invested in this thing of service for Christ than anybody else, including the other apostles. He traveled more. He suffered more. He wrote more epistles. He founded more churches. So that when he was speaking to some of his converts, and it seemed like things were not going well, for example, to the Galatian church, he, he makes this statement. I'm afraid. I may have labored over you in vain. He's very concerned about this. Something that bugs him. I guarantee you it bugs Christian workers. But I, it just bugs Christians. When he was writing to the Thessalonian church, he had another concern. They were suffering persecution. He said, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. He sent Timothy back and chose to remain at Athens alone for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you in our labor would be in vain. I don't have the verse, don't have time, but Philippians 2.16, he mentions it again. And I just want to take a moment out to show you just how much this has been chewed over over the years by people. It's kind of interesting. A couple weeks ago in my ABF class, I had a, chance, re, uh, had a, a, a reason to mention C.H. Spurgeon's book, Lectures to My Students. That's, that's a prize. You don't have to be a a ministerial student or a minister to read that book. But I, I had mentioned, because um, it was on point with what we were talking about in the class that day, that did you know the very first chapter in that book? See, Spurgeon had a college, and Spurgeon delivered these lectures, which eventually became this book, Lectures to My Students, to those ministerial students. The very first chapter in that book is The Minister's Self-Watch, which was what I was talking about in that lesson a couple weeks ago. Here's something that might kind of interest you. Here's chapter 11, the minister's fainting fits. I don't mean when you get low blood sugar and, I mean fainting in the sense of becoming discouraged and wanting to quit. The minister's fainting fits. You know, that chapter is so good that Warren Wearsby said every preacher should read that chapter every year. I haven't done that, but I probably could have profited from it. Spurgeon himself, as you probably know, suffered bouts of depression, so he was well qualified to talk about this particular subject. But something interested me as I was looking at this a little bit more this week, that he gave six reasons. Coincidentally, this has nothing to do with the core conference. I didn't attend a session, but this came up, and this was a subject there depression, but he gave these six things. Just quickly listen to this. When, when can you be sort of figuring that you might go be exposed to a, a siege of this, this temptation to be discouraged and question? Number one, after a great success, yeah. Number two, before some great achievement, well, God will want to keep you humble. Number three, during a stretch of long, unbroken labor. Yeah, that's bad. Number four, after a crushing personal blow. Yeah, that really... Number five, when troubles multiply. 
Every one of these things resonates with me. But this last one, I think, resonates the most. Number six, for no specifiable reason. Because, I mean, it's, it's like spontaneous generation. It just seems to come out of the air. I mean, inexplicably, you can be going along, and for some reason, you don't really have anything that's happened to you. You can't really come up with any explanation for it, but you just find yourself down in the dumps. So this is very real, and it happens. But Paul has some very wise counsel for us, and I, I want you to look at this ever so quickly. He said, you know, the thing that you've got to keep coming back to, he told the Galatian church, the thing you've got to keep coming back to is this, that results in Christian service are seldom immediate. So he wrote to those people and he said, let us not grow weary in the doing of good and well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up or if we faint not. Hence Spurgeon's, the minister's fainting fits if we faint not. I mean, once in a rare while you get an easy one. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about one particular Thursday night. I was with one of the men of the church. We went on, we were, it was our visitation night. We went to a place. I knew the family. They had, be, uh, the, the gentleman, the other parts of the family had been attending our church. And this particular sibling in the family was not an attender, but was a professor and had begun to attend. And so we went to follow up and just sort of see how things were going and check on them a little bit. And I turned to the man and I said, now you know you're saved, right? I just wanted to let him talk. And he said, oh yeah, and he told me his salvation. And I turned to his wife and I said, what about you? I didn't know her as well. I said, what about you? I said, do you, do you know if you died today you'd go to heaven? And she said, no, I don't think I know that. And I said, well, would you like to? And she said, yes, I would. About 10 minutes later, it didn't take much. She knew it. About 10 minutes later, she prayed to ask the Lord into her heart. And I can tell you the times that's happened like that, about on one hand. I think God gives you one of those every so often just to kind of keep you encouraged. But for the most part, it's just the tough slogging. You go witness to people, you go hand out tracts, you go knock on doors. I never forget when I was in Schaumburg, Illinois, a lot of you, well, Pastor Steve served there too, but Frank Bumpus was pastor. I served there on the pastoral staff for four years before we went to Pennsylvania. Pastor Bumpus was big on canvassing. And there'd come emphases when he'd get you out there. I mean, there'd be a ton of people out there. I remember him telling us a story one time. He said, you know, he said, I'd, I'd, go, I'd go to a neighborhood. And he'd say, Lord, he'd pray before you. I said, Lord, I don't have anybody coming from this neighborhood. And he'd go and knock on every door and come back lower in the snake's belly. No, no results, slam doors, whatever. He said, and, you know, I'd show up at church the next Sunday and there'd be two or three visitors there that I never saw. I didn't know him from Adam's house cat. His point was, you know, he th I think God does that. I'm not sure God would have done that if we hadn't been out there faithfully doing what we were supposed to do. 
But God does that because he knows we need this encouragement. So I think that's why they asked. They had a doctrinal reason, but they had a very practical reason, one that we can all identify with. But we really got to hasten to this other thing. How did Paul answer this? Well, it's really interesting when you look at the chapter, here's what you find out. You find out the answer was what caused the problem in the first place. It's the spectacular, triumphant defense of the resurrection that Paul gives until he finally gets to the end of the chapter. And this is something that probably you've known from Crater World, but you need to see it again. This first starts off with the word therefore. So when you see therefore, the first thing you've got to do is ask yourself what the therefore is there for. See, he's basing this whole statement, this whole Paul uncertainty, therefore, my beloved brothers, on this incredible defense of the resurrection. And again, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but I do have some things I'd like to say to you. So where did the chapter start? Well, it started with Paul admitting. Not just admitting, proud to say it. Yeah, you're right, you know. The, the resurrection is absolutely critical to the gospel. Without the resurrection, you don't have any gospel. You realize that? Without the resurrection, you don't have any gospel. And he doubles down on this. I mean, he's just as blunt and straightforward as you can be. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. So like I said, I might as well go home. I'll follow you out the door. Our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. Then he goes on to make some other statements in the chapter. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's of no account. It's purposeless. It's empty. It's useless. And you are still in your sins. And then he makes this statement that I already mentioned several times, verse number 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, most miserable. Why is that true? Well, well because you're living a life of sacrifice. You're living a life filled with trial. You're living a life filled with certain amount of opposition and hostility in this world and from your own flesh. You're choosing to live that life. And if you're not doing it because you're serving a risen Christ... If you're not doing it because you believe that one day you'll stand before him, that one day if you do it the way he wants you to do it and by his grace, he may very well look at you and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If that's not why you're doing it, then you've wasted your time. You really have. So he says, yeah, it, it's true. No one's going to try to hide behind it. The resurrection is integral, absolutely crucial to Christianity. But, having said that, it's also true that the resurrection is unshakable. In fact, you have the testimony of three things, which we'll touch on briefly. You have the testimony of Scripture, or the witness of Scripture. You have the witness of history. And most importantly, you have the witness of transformed lives. Let's just look and see what he says. So he says in verse 4, 3, that Christ died for our sins. This is the gospel. He says, this is what I declared to you. This is the gospel message. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was buried. He rose again the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Do you know what he's saying? 
He's saying that just as certainly as the scriptures foretold a Messiah who would come into this world and who would die on the cross or who would make the ultimate final sacrifice for men and women and boys and girls to have and know that their sins are forgiven. It just as certainly testified that he would be victorious and successful in that effort and that he would be raised from the dead in demonstration of the success of that mission. Paul tells us in Romans 1.4, He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. His claims were not idle. They were validated by the resurrection. And his sacrifice was not in vain because Paul tells us in Romans 4.25, the last verse of that chapter, that he was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised again for our justification. God raised him up out of that tomb so that everybody would know, yes, when Jesus said on the cross of Calvary, it is finished, brother, God said, it is finished. It's done, it's done. The great transaction is done. No more works. No more deeds. My salvation today doesn't depend on whether I'm here at church. Whether I read my Bible tomorrow morning, it depends on something Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary and was completely accepted by God as an atonement for sin. That's what I'm trusting in today. And you know what? As the songwriter reminded us, we need no other argument. We need no other plea. It is enough for me that Jesus died and that he died for me. But he rose in demonstration of the success of that mission. You don't watch out, I'll get to preaching. It's in the Old Testament, notably in places like Psalm 16. We'll just move on. But this testimony of transformed lives, I just want to talk about that for a moment because, you know, that's, that's about... I mean, there's none of these things that set, is separate from the other, but when you start looking at this, you start looking at... Paul decides to name three individuals. He says he was seen, first of all, by Cephas. Well, that's interesting. Don't you remember that scene on Easter Sunday morning early? They too, John and Peter, ran to the tomb when they heard the report of the women. Old Peter, he was slower. John outran him. And old Peter come lumbering up there at the looks in. Sees the grave clothes, doesn't know what to make of it. John saw and believed. Peter didn't know what to make of it. But I'll tell you what he did know what to make of when he met the risen Christ. When those guys, or maybe it was, maybe it was Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas, I don't know. But the, the man was Cleopas. On the road to Emmaus, they left Jerusalem. Several hours walk. Jesus, the risen Christ, drew near. They began to speak with him. They found their hearts strangely warmed while he opened to them the scriptures. And then as he sat down and broke bread with them and vanished out of their sight, they realized that they had been in the presence of the risen Christ. And they were so excited they forgot all about the several hours of walking they did and ran back to Jerusalem as fast as their old weary legs would carry them, and they were going to tell the apostles what they had seen. They were too late. They got there, and the apostles themselves are jubilant. They're saying, the Lord is risen indeed. That, that 
that greeting that we always give on, on Easter Sunday, it comes right out of that text. The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to, to Simon. Buddy, I'm telling you what. If Simon came back there and said, I've seen him, the rest of them said, yes, sir. So that was well chosen. I mean, you're talking about the you're talking about the Peter that was fearful, that was gripped with fear. The fear of man bringeth a snare. And he, fa he fell into it, and he denied Christ. You're talking about the man who succumbed to fear. Something happens to him. The Peter of Passover and the Pen Peter of Pentecost are two different people. What happens? Number one, he's seen the risen Christ. Number two, the power of the Holy Spirit has come. And he stands there and he fearlessly declares the resurrection. Then he mentions James, and we're not talking about one of the, there were two Jameses that were in the apostles. Not talking about either one of them, talking about James, the Lord's half-brother. That's why you're looking at this first. Because they didn't believe. That's what it says, John 7, 5. Even his brothers did not believe. They baited him. If you look up at that verse, they baited him. Are you going to go to Jerusalem too? Show them all those works you do. Because nobody, nobody who seeks to be known and believed on hides. Go up there, show them your... They baited him, about half mocked him. But this James we're talking about here, he goes on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. What happened to him? He saw the risen Christ. Paul says, last of all, he was seen of me as of one born out of due time. What happened to him? Well, he was on his way to Damascus. He had letters from the chief priests. He was persecuting Christians because he believed Jesus was an imposter. What happened to him? He met the risen Christ. And Jesus called to him from heaven and he said, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Lord, who art thou? And then he heard some of the most crushing words that he could have ever expected to hear, and yet some of the most life-transforming words. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. It's happened over and over again. In fact, I'll tell you this, there's lots of skeptics. There always have been lots of skeptics. But if you're an honest skeptic, that changes things. See, we don't have too many honest skeptics today. We have people who manipulate and change the truth when it doesn't quite agree with what they say. But more than 200 years ago, you had two men who were both English scholars. One was an Oxford graduate. He was a politician and a poet. That's an interesting combination. His name was Gilbert West. And then you had another man whose name was Lord Littleton. And these two men knew each other, and they were both skeptics. They both did not believe in Christianity, but they did some research, and they said to themselves, you know, Christianity has two linchpins. If you can disprove either of those two linchpins, then, Christian then Christianity will fall on its face. They were right. They said one linchpin is the resurrection of Christ and the other linchpin is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. So Gilbert West, they decided they'd take a year to do their studies and do their research, confident that they would meet back again in a year 
and found that these things, they had been successful in disproving them. The Gilbert West went his way to disprove the resurrection, and Lord Littleton went his way to disprove the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. They did meet back together in a year, except when they met back together in a year, they'd both become Christians. They had both become absolutely convinced by the evidence that those two events did take place. More in our day, another man had quite a bit of education, an Ivy League graduate, Harvard to be exact. 30 years a journalist, 30 years an atheist. You know him as Lee Strobel. One day his world came crashing down. He came home and his wife told him that she had become a Christian. He thought the only way he could save his marriage was to go out and disprove Christianity. He spent two years trying to do that and zeroed in on the resurrection because he understood that the resurrection was of linchpin importance. Two years ago, it was November 8, 1981, and Lee Strobel said it's time to sit down with the evidence and make a verdict, come to a decision. And he said this as he tells the story to himself. You know, in the light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realize it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. He, today, he's one of evangelicals' most popular apologists. Just spoke somewhat recently in Greenville. He too wrote a book. Both of these men, Lord Littleton and Gilbert West, wrote a book. You can read it or you can get it and read it. But Lee Strobel also wrote a book. Some of you probably would be familiar with it. It's called The Case for Christ. So if the resurrection really is the linchpin of Christianity and it transforms everything we think about Christian living and Christian service, sorry for the verses, then Paul says, be steadfast. Yeah, you're going to get this temptation. You're going to have those days. It'll come out of the air, I'm telling you. You can have those days where you wake up and say, what am I doing? This is a waste of time. Don't give in to that. Remind yourself of these great Bible truths. It'll help you be steadfast. You know, this word translated steadfast comes from the Greek word that means a chair. Well, like what you're sitting in. And so it projects the idea, if you're sitting in a chair, it projects the idea of confidence. You have every confidence that chair is going to sustain your weight. It's not rickety. It's not swaying around. You're not worried about this. You know you're going to be fine. It's sort of like we have an expression in English. Somebody going to call you on the phone and give you bad news. They say, you better be sitting down. Why do they say that? Same reason. It's the same thing that's in the word picture here. We need to have every confidence, beloved, and we can. And then he doubles down by saying, you know what? Don't just be confident. Be confirmed. Be immovable. Don't let people come along with fancy ideas, every wind of doctrine and sleight of men, whereby they lie in wait with cunning craftiness to deceive. 
but instead be nurtured up in the words of sound doctrine. Constantly keep refreshing the fire of the truth that burns within your heart, that you know that Jesus that transformed your life is the living Lord. And don't just be confident and don't just be confirmed. Be committed. Always abounding. Don't be a half, halfway Christian. Get in with both feet. Whether you think that you're called to full-time Christian service or whether you just know you're a full-time Christian, get into that thing with both feet. Because I want to tell you something right now. If the resurrection of Jesus is so, then so is ours because we share in his victory. Which is why he says in verse number 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. He gives us. He didn't say he gave Jesus the victory. He says he gave us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if the resurrection of Jesus is so and ours is so, so is the reward he promised because in some of his last words that we ever have recorded in Scripture, he said this, Behold, I come quickly. And my reward is with me to give to every man according as his work shall be. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Years ago, when Apple was just the fledgling company with a Macintosh computer and a guy by the name of Steve Jobs, it wasn't anything like the nearly $3 trillion market capitalization company it is today. I mean, Apple is a behemoth. And Steve Jobs knew he needed a CEO, a particular kind of CEO. He and the board of Apple met with some 20 people. Presumably, these people were the best and brightest that technology in the day had to offer. Jobs vetoed every one of them. Finally, he met a guy by the name of John Scully. You know who John Scully is? Well, right then when Jobs met him, John Scully was the youngest CEO that PepsiCo ever had. He was a brilliant market, marketing strategist. He was the one who came up with the Pepsi Challenge, for those of you who remember. And for those of you who remember, set off the Cola Wars. I hate to disappoint him, but Coke is still better. <laughs> Had to get that in. It's free. So you could understand how maybe when Jobs interviewed him, he was a little skeptical about taking the job. Five months later, when Steve Jobs met him and offered him the job, first one he'd offered it to. And Scully, hemmed and hawed, wasn't sure what he wanted to do until 
Steve Jobs hit him with this one line. It's become the lore. It's become legendary. He looked right at John Scully and he said this. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want to come with me and have an opportunity to do something that will change the world? Beloved, I'm not talking about technology and I'm not talking about computers as much as I love that stuff. I'm talking about what John said when he said, the world is passing away and its desires, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know, because you know, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Father, bless our hearts, as pitiful as we are. Thank you that you have given us the opportunity to do something that matters for eternity. And it's only the devil's tool to discourage us from that task. That we become weary in well-doing and are tempted to faint or to quit. Revive, bless, and recharge the person closest to that today. And for those of us not necessarily feeling that particular problem at the moment, but knowing how readily it comes out of nowhere, Fortify us and encourage us with the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, who himself said, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to each of you according as his work shall be. I pray, dear Lord, that in that day there will be no one who has not a crown to cast at your feet who is in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.